just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guest is the journalist Ed West, who's the deputy editor of Unheard. And his new book is called Small Men on the Wrong Side of History, which is, well, it's a book about conservatives, who we like here at The Spectator, but it starts from a slightly defensive point of view, because, Ed, if I understand your starting point of your book right, you're essentially saying you think that you are a dying breed... Yes, it's quite a pessimistic book. It's a mixture of, sort of memoir, politics, history, current affairs. I, I wrote it in the style, because I find politics books quite boring, and I find politics quite boring a lot of the time, and it becomes too shouty, and people just end up just making these sermons about the other side, and how awful they are, and I find it very off-putting, even from my own side, in fact, especially so. So I wanted to write it more from a, a personal account, just to make it seem more human, so that was part of the reason. But it also, but the underlying theme is that we are the culture war is sort of more like a reformation, or the analogies I use are the reformation and the Christian takeover of Rome, and with the sort of losing side in both these instances, the Catholics in the Reformation or the, the pagans in Rome, we are basically losing, and so that's my my entire story. I mean, what you say in the beginning, which is sort of very eye-catching and curious, is you say, look. It's never really been cool to be a teenage Tory, and that's obtained for, I don't know, at least 100, 100 years or so. But it used to be the case that as a cohort aged, you know, the cliche about, you know, if you're not right. a, whatever, if you're not a, not a socialist when you're a teenager, yeah. you have no heart, and if you're not a you know, conservative when you're middle-aged, you have no head or whatever the... You know, the the idea was that cohorts would age into conservatism. You say that's not happening now. Yeah. Why I, is that? Well, there are a number of reasons, but I began... So I started writing the book really about eight or nine years ago, thinking about it, because I saw that the people my age in my social network, who tended to be centre-left because, you know, I went to university, I grew up in London, and now I sort of worked in the media, were not becoming at all conservative. And even when they had adopted quite conservative lifestyles, the most obvious one, having families they were in many ways even more liberal. They weren't necessarily sort of socialist in their views, but they were still very hostile to conservatism and it, and it wasn't this cohort movement. And I began to look into the studies of the different generations and this, the evidence from America especially, but also from Britain, is that the current generation, if you're born from the late 70s onwards, that that kind of shift isn't happening at all. People are staying, they still identify as being liberal or progressive even as they enter the 40s, and even if they have children, but especially not if they don't have children. And that's like, that's something that's slightly new. And if you look at the voting habits of people... So I started writing the book around 2011, but after the last election, then I really started doing it full-time because I re- at that point I really noticed how, if you're under 45, the Tories are just completely repulsive to most people. And no-one in my social circle except me, basically, was voting Tory. I mean, I live in quite an unusual But why, why do you think this is happening? I mean, is this just a sort of genius move by Tony Blair and Barack Obama to make, you know, progressivism or liberalism seem cool? No, because, I mean, most of the coolest people are liberals on the left. There's no denying that. We can't compete in any way on that thing. I mean, Barack Obama is just, it was just the latest, you know, 
Tony Blair, early Tony Blair before the whole war thing. You know, <laughs> sort of everyone from Mandela to Humphrey Bogart on the left, and they're all calling us. But I think there has been a sort of gen- a generational cultural shift since the big cultural changes really began in the 60s and really hit much harder in the 80s and 90s. Now we're sort of the children and the grandchildren of that cultural change. And that cultural change was towards liberalism, and that has become the sort of establishment now. I mean, a huge factor is the decline of religion. I think this religion keeps people quite conservative for various reasons. In America, the the atheists are really starting to win now in America amongst the younger generation. They are really falling out of religion. And when people stop is that religion, Is that true across, the across demographics? The across, I mean, or is that that's a sort of... Well, no, amongst even like the Mormons now are starting to see a real shift losing people. Amongst Americans born under 35, there is huge decline in religion and you know what they call nuns, which is no religion. And so, when people, I think when people start, you know, it's cliche that progressivism is a sort of religion by another means, and all sorts of political movements have been described as religion, but people need a sort of default moral anchor. And so, when Christianity is not that default moral anchor, if you meet anyone who's vaguely who is like under the age of 45 or 50, who has a sort of strong sense of social justice. If they're not Christian, they're likely to be quite left-wing, if they have some sort of moral anchor amongst them. And so that just makes it very, very hard to be a conservative in a lot of social circles. So we start to shrink in number. And those of us who are conservatives just keep our mouths shut because no one likes to be hated, right? <laughs> no. Well, some people that's do. Few, they, they, yes. Yes, exactly. I mean, that's part of the problem. Some people who like being hated then end up coming to the fore and they become the representatives of you know, conservatism, the people with the sort of least amount of shame. And obviously Donald Trump was the most obvious classic example of that. He's saying that someone with basically zero likeable qualities in him. Yes, well, I mean, you do say, like, you know, the, the liberals, the progressives, the lefties are sort of taking over the world, winning the argument, we're all dying out. But at the same time, in actual power... In power, yeah. We're seeing something well, the, quite I mean, the opposite. In terms of my book sales, Corbyn's defeat was totally... Like, I was obviously quite <laughs> pleased Corbyn thought... that. Wow, but Corbyn, you've really damaged me. But no, I mean, that's... The, I mean, my argument is conservatives win elections and lose everything else. So there has been, you know, 10 years of Tory MPs in Downing Street. I mean, obviously, three or four years have been completely taken up with this whole referendum business... But the, the people in power and the machineries of government are still overwhelmingly left of centre. You know, if you look at all the, the bodies that control how government actually works, if you look at you know, the, the elite positions in universities, the media, education, and the, the influential industries, they're still yeah, and probably even more so left of centre than they were 10 years ago. You know, the Conservatives appointed, I think, basically two people to bodies during their entire last 10 years, and they sacked both of them after sort of Twitter storms. While In the meantime, while Labour in power, you see sort of Labour supporters get into positions of influence and they stay in those positions of influence so most bodies most institutional bodies in britain are still very even so more so a big sort of conservative it's a sort of progressive cake with conservative icing on it yes well the conservative i mean the conservative party right now because we're going through a sort of realignment that on economic issues they're becoming much more left center that kind of makes perfect sense on social issues they are also moving still moving broadly to the left I mean, you know, that that's better than the alternative. But, I mean, a lot of this is because the, the Corbyn is a sort of black swan list because it always happened that Eric Joyce had this fight in Parliament and then Corbyn ended up leader of Labour and then we've gone through this weird parallel time zone. 
I think if it wasn't well, Eric Corbyn, Joyce's fight in Parliament kicked all this off. Oh, that's the correct theory. It all began because Eric Joyce said that Parliament, and because of that, Ed Miliband changed the rules, and then there's a whole... The punch that went around the world. Yeah, basically, he's a <laughs> friendship of the modern era. But the thing about Trump, Trump was a sort of reaction to this. So at the end of my book, I deal with the sort of reaction. Trump has got supports amongst a demographic who feel under fire and feel like they're losing, but they are also a very much a dying demographic. Now, so Labour... Labour are in a terrible mess at the moment. But the Tories are also, in the long term, still got bigger problems because their supporters are very, very old. You know, and what happens to old people in 20 years' time is that they're no longer with us. So they have still got a lot to do because the generation coming up, and the generation coming up are still going to be even more probably left liberal than the ones in power right now because they would have been exposed to almost no conservative ideas. You know, most of their teachers will be left centre, etc., etc. So in 20 years' time, the Tories are still going to have huge problems, even if they are sort of functionally in power for the next few years, which they probably will be. Now, as, as someone who's on, on the more kind of hand-wringing liberal end of the spectrum myself, what I sort of wonder, you know, but obviously lots of my friends and colleagues are conservatives and I respect right. them. Why is it, do you think, at the moment, you know, it seems to me one of the problems is that you're, you know, in any of these sort of battles, each team has a series of kind of really prominent sort of centre-forwards, yeah. if you like. And the sort of poster boys and poster girls for conservatism or for you know what we broadly call right-wing ideas seem quite often to the sort of as objective as possible observer to be people who are either self-interested, hypocritical, power-crazed, trolly, ignorant, obnoxious. You know, you look at the sort of the Trumps, the Katie Hopkinses, the, you know, Tucker Carlson's, the, you know, these are the sort of... Centre forwards for conservatism. Yeah, where are the the Roger Scrutons and the Oak Shots and the? Well, I mean, I would defend Tucker. I think Tucker's pretty. He's a very interesting guy, and I, I, you know, I'm a bit of a fan. I would say, in terms of, I mean, the thing with Trump and the Hopkins thing is that if an idea becomes so repulsive and people who have those ideas are shamed, then by nature the sort of people who rise to the top are those the shameless individuals. I mean, there is also a problem that people. The psychological differences between people, liberals and conservatives, liberals tend to have be more inclined towards the arts because they have they're higher in openness, the personality traits. So you're going to find more people with those kind of qualities. I mean, that's the main reason things like academia and acting are always going to be left centre. It's not sort of institutional bias. It's just the way it is. And I suppose conservatism is, in Britain anyway is particularly focused in, in this kind of reactive tabloid fight back mentality and in the US the same things happen with shock shock so you know so it starts to appeal to a certain kind of man and it tends to be men who feel you know like you know I can't drive my car because they're putting speed limits and I'm you know I'm the, the PC brigade are you know stopping me doing whatever I like and it's it's kind of developed that kind of barroom mentality because that's I suppose the way to sell newspapers or that's the way to get elected it's not necessarily the best thing for conservatives generally no, it seems to be kind of bad PR sort of thing, you know. Yeah, it's it's bad PR, but I mean, I think even if you're if you if you're quite gentlemanly, you know, the thing with that Scruton, Scruton was a very gentlemanly man and a very thoughtful man, but his ideas are still repulsive to most liberals, most progressives. If you actually look, you know, beyond the architecture, he'd still be, he still wouldn't be accepted amongst them as a sort of as an okay guy. I was fine. You can talk to us because you're really intelligent and you like classical music. You know, you're still off the off the scales. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things your book does that's attractive is you, you kind of delve back a bit to talk about what conservatism 
is and isn't in its origins. And you, I mean, you, you line up these sort of little binaries, like, you know, Team Augustine versus right, Team yeah. Pelagius, Team, you know, Hobbes versus Team Rousseau. I've got a very Rousseau. simple conservative mind. I need everything to be binary. <laughs> it's black um, and white. You know, Burke and Payne, you know, yeah. you've got this. But it strikes me a little... Do, I mean, do you think conservatism is a sort of intellectual position or a habit of mind? Because you seem to suggest that in some ways there there is a sort of, you know, it's it's a proclivity of personality. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a mixture. There is the intellectual tradition, which both... I look at that, and that goes back to the, I suppose you would start the 18th century as a starting point for ideology. And conservatism, in a way, was a sort of way of opposing relig- I mean, religious... Now we talk about the religious right, but as a way of opposing religious enthusiasm, as it was called in the 17th century. Which is century. the sort of extreme Protestant sense. Well, actually, yes, Puritanism yeah. is sort of it's this idea that if the, the, there should be rule by the godly because that was against the social hierarchy. And so the conservatives like Hume and Burke were were responding to that and they were articulating a conservative philosophy that one that wasn't really based on religious instruction even though i think all politics basically comes down to religion that's why it's it's like augustine and original sin i mean and and in that sense that's where the overlap comes with personality types because if you're more pessimistic and more inclined to see people as inherently bad and you know barbarians then you are more likely to be conservative and you know i look at Augustine's miserable <laughs> view of the world as being doom and gloom, and I think well, I kind of agree with that. <laughs> yes, and I think it's like well, liberals tend to have a more optimistic view of the world and tend to think we're sort of by nature good, and it's only society, man. You know, so, so then I bring Rousseau, who's I think probably one of the most evil people in history, and I think his ideas. Paul Johnson the, did a good job on him. Oh, didn't he? brilliant! <laughs> Paul Johnson's thing was fantastic. The great assassination of his character. When I was growing up, his ideas were quite big in influence education, and that was very much sort of the late 60s to 80s thing. Rousseau was the man who's born free, but everywhere is in chains. Yeah, and he was just an awful, awful human being, and he did the classic sort of liberal man of, you know, he left his girlfriend pregnant and said, oh, you go and deal with it, and when it's a series of just using people and exploiting them. And so, yeah, so there is... Alexander Herzen, who said, said, fish are born to fly, yet everywhere we find them in water. (laughs) (laughs) Good conservative retort. Yeah, so the conservatives tend to be gloomy and doomy. You know, Tob Hobbes being another predecessor whose view is that, you know, life is sort of brutish and short, so unless we have a sort of strong order to keep things. It's temperaments of conservatives be liberals, but also there's the, the origin in religion and the sort of the religious conflicts in Europe. And so we see, you know, the, the Puritans and the high Anglicans becoming the Whigs and the Tories, and I sort of go through that, and so that becomes modern liberalism, conservatism, until you have like the more extreme ideologies of the modern world. Yeah, I mean, one of the points you make, which I think is, a, is one of the most attractive things about conservatism, is this idea that it's, you know, it's not about hanging on to the past for the past's sake no. or obeying you know, existing structures just because they're there, but the sort of sense that you, know, you, you would have a default respect for things that are already in place, right, yeah. even if they don't seem very reasonable, because... You There's know, a reason why they've lasted all these years. Yeah, yeah, to sort of was it keep a keep a good hold of nurse for fear of finding right, something yeah. worse, kind of thing. Also, yeah, Cheston's fence also called. You know, you see a fence and you might not know why it's there, but you take it away and the ball comes and charges you. There's a institutions. I mean, that's the what the, the 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 biggest mistake people think about conservatism is they confuse it with what Jerry Muller, you know, describes as orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is the idea that there's a preordained sort of way of life that's been usually for religious reasons and therefore nothing must change you know so that uh, critic of conservatives might say oh well you'd rather we're still sort of stuck in 
uh, cutting heads off and sacrificing them to the sun god or something. But what conservatism isn't about things staying the same. It's just about mainly the chief thing is institutions, institutional proof that an institution has survived all this time. So it probably has some good function. And even if the origins of the institutions might be might be slightly dubious you know it's that old silly argument oh the judge of england uh, henry VIII was divorced like twice and killed two wives it's like well all institutions start are started by quite bad guys i mean the, the royal family has is a great example it's institutional has great proof it's a very a very effective system and when the the queen and the next king crowns you know we all pretend that to believe if we don't that you know God is sort of appointed him sovereign, even though you know, their ancestors were just the best at fighting or just happened to be Protestant in this case. You know, we all know, we all put that to the back of our mind. The institutions might have started in slightly shady ground. But. Who is it you quote? I mean, I think it might be Burke you quote to the effect that institutions kind of mellow into... Right, yeah, that was, yeah that's Burke. I in, quote in, Burke like a hundred times. He's yes, no, no, he's obviously... He's the prophet. He's the great yes, man. Yeah. But, you know, one of the points you, you make is, look, we tend to respect things that are there but you know we can do without for example you know stoning adulteresses to death yeah. or you know sacrificing people to the sun god and so forth i mean how do you decide which ones to get rid of in the conservative mind you know which of the inheritances because you say you know we don't we don't believe in this sort of utopian projects to right, smash yeah. everything and build it from the ground up but obviously there are some things that you go yeah sure actually you know fair enough i suppose the, the mainstream conservative view would be just that pragmatism is a uh, we start from the I suppose it's the burden of proof. The burden of proof has to be on the people showing that change is good. I mean, one of the things, I suppose one of the core issues that comes through during this issue, during this period I cover, is gay marriage. And it's one thing a lot of conservatives were unhappy with. But then there were also quite conservative arguments for making it. So it was one interesting thing that tested that question about, OK, the marriage has been successful as it is, why change it? But then say, well, actually, these are people buying into an institution so there are conservative arguments both ways. And I, I was working at a Catholic magazine at the time, so it was tend to be quite against it. But there also it kind of came on basic Christian ideas of of individualism and love and the marriage being a sort of recognition of, of that institution. But I think that the, the basic cop-out would be it was just a matter of pragmatism, you know, which um, don't start with the premise that something has to go because it seems irrational or out of date, but show how it can be adapted or it can be we can do without this maybe small change because all conservatives i mean even the worst revolutions have some good things i mean no one wouldn't say that oh the french revolution i would say is probably overall is a bad thing you know beheaded hundreds and thousands of people but yeah okay the metric system is probably better than having 24 <laughs> different standards of yes apart from that mrs lincoln yeah. you know um, but yeah exactly that was the show <laughs> i i mean the gay marriage is a good instance i mean again from the point of view of the sort of liberal blob you go, all right, we can see that there's a very good case for, you know, market liberalism and for many of the things that conservatives stand for. Mm. But how come semi-infallibly over the last 40 or 50 years of social change, effectively the conservative disposition has more often than not ended up on the sort of, if you like, nasty party side of things that have now come to be accepted to do with, you know, racial equality, various aspects of social justice you know, gay marriage, all that. I don't know, there are lots of issues where things have turned back. I mean, uh, education has gone back much more towards the conservative idea. Uh, crime, I mean, crime in the US particularly, the kind of 60s ideas about crime were completely abandoned because they were obviously seen as quite bad. 
I mean, conservatism is... I mean, I think it's partly because we just lost the frame of the argument on so many things, and so we're inevitably going to be cast as baddies. And in some times, we kind of almost want to be cast as baddies, I think, in this great sort of drama, this morality tale. I think... And I mentioned how I saw, you know, the Lincoln film, and to me it seemed like a perfect analogy for the liberal. I think of this like an American vision of the world, you know, we move towards better, more tolerant world, and this was slavery, and now there's gay marriage, and I suppose now it'll be the trans debate. I don't know how that's going to end. I don't know, we would, we would say we'd probably lost the argument, but I would also say that conservatives mostly didn't have nasty opinions on these things. They just had either slow-down opinions or they had sort of more moderate views in some cases, but we've still come to lose it in the public mind. Now, there's a sort of... Well, there are a couple of kind of junction points in history that you bring up, one of which, and I don't want this podcast suddenly to sound like a sort of, you know, really dull A-level history lesson, but oh. the Corn Laws yeah. being <laughs> perhaps the... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The dread words, the Corn Laws, tariff reform and imperial preference. But the Corn Law row yeah. seemed to herald a kind of split in conservatism that seems to be going on to this day with... There's a sort of it's, free it's, market. It's, uh, unfortunately, it's very, very... It's as unsexy as history gets. It's, you know, if you've got the Tudors and the Nazis at one end, the Corn Law is... It's, it's yeah, up there. If anyone's actually listened to this right now, please stick with us. Please Google <laughs> Corn Laws. They're yeah, fascinating. I, and, uh, actually, I, I think I managed to avoid the Corn Laws in history, but then I did start reading them after this, this latest unfortunate business of the last four years when we've all been in each other's throats. And the parallels are incredibly relevant, aren't they? They're very striking. It's between a a largely rural base on one side who are losing to a sort of growing demographic who are like the cities and the sort of smart set, the Whig liberal elite. And there are lots of parallels with our modern world. I mean, in many ways, we are sort of now going back to a more Tory v Whig conflict in politics where we've had, you know, we've had sort of class-based conflicts for about a century and a half, which is sort of largely working-class socialists against a sort of middle-class alliance of liberals and conservatives and now we're going much more back to the sort of the Whig mercantile elites in the cities versus the more rural sort of Tory party. Who and the Tories always called themselves in the 18th century they were the party of the people against the courts. It's the same thing. It would be like I don't know modern day economists talking about the liberal elite. I mean, there's literally nothing new under the sun. It's yeah. the same old story. But yeah, those those parallels are. But there's that, that sort of fissure, isn't there, between the I mean, because conservatism has become a term that sort of seems to rope in a sort of social tendency towards, you know, people need to behave in a certain way that's quite prescribed, you know, and just sort of liberal, you know, social liberalism, we all think, you know, do what you like as long as you don't frighten the horses. And yet economic liberalism has become the great kind of conservative thing. And those two things seem to tug against each other a bit. Yeah, it's called, I mean, David Willett's called it a conservative dilemma and it's, they are all in complete contradiction. And one of the things that's happening now is that, you know, what people... It's, in states, it's called the Great Realignment, where politics is moving, it's completely shifting. So those the old two alliances are breaking apart so that we're having a more a conservative party on both sides of the Atlantic, which is much more economically left-wing because it represents a much more working-class constituency. And then you have a left-wing party, which is becoming... You know, I hate that word because it's so overused, neoliberal, it's sort of a socially liberal and economically liberal. And that's slightly not happened in Britain because of what's happened to the Labour Party, but that is the general trend, which in a sense kind of makes more sense because even in history, some of the, you know, the early 
economic radicals in Britain around the time of the Luddites were very conservative. There were people trying to hold on to their economic status and their way of life against the modernization of industrialization. So there's no reason why that doesn't really make sense in one way, because you know, modern day conservative in the kind of Thatcherite mold is a contradiction in a sense. I mean, yeah. kind of, the free market destroys everything that conservatives love. Well, exactly. I mean, there's that thing, you know, you talk very eloquently about how, you know, at its root, conservatives, and sort of Burke being, again, a prime example, says, yeah. you know, most people's loyalties naturally are, you know, stronger the more local they are. Right, yeah. And so you're not being Little England a nationalist if you believe that those sorts of units sure, are I mean, I think it's reasonable. Just, yeah. but, but, you know, the great movement of capital and free, free markets are presumably what works against that. Yeah, and I mean, there's, I, mean, that, I mean, that is the main reason the Conservatives have lost, is that we've basically become a lot richer. And so, I, I mean... I've and more international. In, I mean, rich, exactly, rich. In one session, those two things kind of go hand in hand. The more international become, the more richer, and vice versa. I mean, I look at the some cultural, political influences in the 50s, 60s, but when it comes down to it, I think just the more rich we become, the more liberal. So conservatism has therefore become a sort of, a sort of minority, an anti-view of... of the current world. I mean, I think that the interesting thing will be, you know, the party post-Brexit. How do you square those two things? Yeah. It's one of the reasons I became even more pessimistic about the Brexit thing, because I just think, how are they going to possibly satisfy their new supporters while, you know, having this whole global Britain buccaneering thing, which they keep going about. Yeah, they're just too, too like, riding two horses with yeah, one exactly. yeah. Someone's going to end up really angry and disappointed, but, you know, fine. Well, that's the new normal, isn't yeah. it? Um, I mean, how conservative do you think the team we've got in Downing Street is? Interesting question. I mean, my natural instinct is to say not very in many ways, but that's just a sort of cliché, grumbling, right-wing columnist thing to say, isn't it? Because they're never going to be happy about the whole thing. I mean, the Conservative Party is an alliance between Conservatives and, and Liberals, and it, and it always has been. So there's room for sort of social Conservatives and there's room for, like, Liz Truss and, you know, the, who wants us all to be using Uber and whatever. No, but, but I mean the the sort of Cummings project to you know remake the civil service and yeah, know, I mean Cummings is an interesting guy because he's a sort of at the end I sort of talk about when the institutions start to rot or when the institutions start to become inherently liberal, which is what happens to our society, then conservatism itself becomes kind of revolutionary and it has this kind of revolutionary conservative this idea of smashing everything up. And I think Dominic Cummings has a bit of that. And some of Trump's advisors, like Stephen Miller, they all sort of quite into that. They want to remake the whole thing by knocking down all these frail, old, liberal-controlled institutions. The BBC is the classic example of that. I mean, I think those kind of... That side... I mean, I think Cummings definitely is a conservative, more so than Boris, who is... I mean, Boris is an old-fashioned sort of small-l liberal conservative, which is, I think, you know, nothing wrong with that. They're probably do the least harm of any political leaders imaginable. Yeah, yeah. no, there's, there's no judgment here. Safe space. Exactly, a safe space. Now, but can you talk about the roots of your own conservatism? Because you're, you describe, you know, being a sort of teenager reading Roger Scruton and you know, <laughs> Roger Scruton and Spider-Man. Like... <laughs> no, Oswald Spengler and Spider-Man, you describe yourself as very good. Uh, the Spengler thing was a joke, by the way. I've actually never got around to reading it. No, well, my parents were sort of bohemian conservatives. As I mentioned, they were quite centric people. My dad was a, he'd sort of started off as a communist when he was a teenager. As, that was after the war and it's all very fashionable. But then he became a foreign correspondent and he became increasingly reactionary. And he was in Africa after decolonization, and he became sort of very 
sort of pessimistic about everything. And so when I was growing up, he was a complete... I mean, he didn't believe in democracy anymore. He sort of he thought... <laughs> he did think the Great Reform Act was a terrible mistake and things... You know, it's like Thomas Carlyle was a great hero. He said that everything had gone downhill since the 14th century. And he, <laughs> and he used to say these things. And I don't know if he was a joke or if it was half a joke or if he actually meant that. He said, oh, well, well, you tell a lovely story about him visiting Nicaragua during the... Oh, right, yeah. yeah so yeah. He's, he was in the war and he was with an, a friend of his, an old deceased uh, journalist called Peter Kemp and they were surrounded by a mob and my dad spoke surrounded by a communist mob and dad spoke very fluent Spanish and he, he was scared and he said well uh, you know to think you're speaking to a, a veteran of the Spanish Civil War like that and they all sort of quieted him down and he said well you know we managed to get out of there and he said he didn't explain to them which side of Spanish War <laughs> Civil War he actually fought he was one of 12 people to volunteer for Franco <laughs> um, which is very very unusual. Has sort of less kind of glamour, doesn't it, than sort of George Orwell? A little bit, less. a little bit less, but that's all right. Or... But also, you're—I mean, you yourself, as someone who avowedly says that you think that, you know, the age we should all go back to is about 1911. You're practically a kind of Marxist compared to him if he's the 14th oh, century. Yeah, right. I mean, you know, your yeah. your family trajectory is very much in the the liberal direction. Yeah, you? yeah. I mean, so my children will, I don't know, maybe accept the 70s, maybe. Yeah, exactly. They'll have to move forward. Can you talk a bit about how you see the culture wars now? Because that does seem to be a realignment of some sort. There's this very... I mean, you yourself said, with, oh, maybe I've got a note of sort of one regret in it. You said, you know, I, I, I've been one of those, you know, oh, yeah, I columnists. feel completely regretful. I, I find it very, very tedious and shouty. I mean, it's just awful. I mean, I partly wrote this book, really... I mean, the main reason I start was after reading Jonathan Haidt's book on the righteous mind, on why people fall out over politics and why they end up really angry about politics. And I used to be one of those people. And reading that was was basically the start of this book because I realised, you know, I don't quite like to explain to myself why I'm conservative because I'd really rather not be because most of my friends are are liberals and I wish I wasn't like this. And I wish I wouldn't get angry about other people's views when I just think they're wrong, they don't understand, they're idiots. And after all, I just went, this is really pointless, a really silly way to spend your time. And I think it's getting caught up in, you know, David Brooks calls it the outrage industrial... It wasn't David Brooks, Arthur Brooks, sorry. Um, the outrage industrial complex, which is just, you know, churning out these articles, getting winding people up about the other side. And it's, you know, it's like a return to these reformation well, so you camps. for a while, didn't you, which... Which is part of no, I've never. I've done like two articles of Spike. Oh, have you? Oh, right. Sorry, I thought you were in. A... No, but I'm, I'm but you, the you... kind of person who would. <laughs> no, I was. A, I mean, it was in Telegraph blogs. I mean, I ended that. Then I wrote did a lot of Spectator, but the you know, Spectator were much different because they had said you can just write whatever you want. So I didn't really get angry about stuff anymore. So it was, I felt it was more measured. So that's but I mean, this this does belong to both sides, doesn't it? This business that you become more interested in owning the libs or right, yeah, calling out. Right, the yeah. Nazis than yeah, you yeah, do in about... advancing an argument. Yeah, because most, I mean, the vast majority of these articles are just about you winning over your own side, aren't you? So you, there's no incentive to actually, the number of people on the other side who are going to be won over by an argument is so tiny, it's not worth it's not worth the effort involved in trying to make a complex argument. It's much better just to score points. And that's fine. I mean, that's the way of debates are are done, but... It's just kind of it's fruitless, and it also ends up as a sort of driving wedge in society. I mean, in the in the states, they're ahead of us, but I think we're catching up. Just the the number of people who spent express a really serious dislike of people of the other side has massively increased in the last twenty years. You know, like uh, the polls of people who think 
Republicans or the Democrats are, you know, not only don't have the best interests at heart, are less evolved or at danger as a country. These numbers, and, you know, I would not want my daughter or son to marry a member of this opposite party. They're now running at 50 or 60%. And Britain's catching up. I mean, the number of Remainers so they wouldn't want to leave her as an in-law went from about 15% to like 35% last year. I mean, these are really like heightened political... And I, I, I find it in conversations with people, people can't even talk about certain stuff because it's become so... It's become so partisan, and that's why I think it's sort of a return to the the Reformation. It's just these pamphlets people are saying about, oh, this this Catholic, but this counterblast the Romans, and this is what our politics has become. It's completely tribal. No, we had we had a podcast guest who came in the other day with a necklace saying "fuck the Tories." Right. Our deputy editor said, "Well, that's very generous. (laughs) Many people on your side won't even kiss one." (laughs) But so, how do we get back? Do you think? I mean, how how it's obviously quite a big question, but do you think there's a way of somehow, I don't know whether it's recreating the centre ground or, or changing the way that debating is done? I don't know. I'm just, I'm Mr. Doom and Gloom. I can't offer solutions. Do you think, <laughs> you think we're just doomed to be standing Hitchens in our echo chambers shrieking at each other's images forever? I think so. I think it was one of Peter Hitchens' tweets, wasn't it? It said, I'm not here to save Britain. I'm just here to write the obituary. <laughs> I'm a bit like that. I can't. I don't. I mean, there are in the states there are charities that try to get people to talk to members of the other side. Peter's quite a good example, actually, of, of someone who who says he doesn't quite identify as a conservative. I mean, he, he appropriates the badge of reactionary as a yeah as a sort of badge of honor. And you yeah, and I mention him a couple of times in the book because he's someone who I think is really interesting and independent thinker, and he's he's someone we should have more of. But I mean. Back to your thing about why do we always the baddies? I think it's partly, I mean, I go through, I mentioned some of these studies that show that liberals tend to have a much less accurate idea of what conservatives think than vice versa. Yeah. And I wonder about that. I, th- I mean, I think part of it is that liberals are just more likely to hang around with other liberals. But, you know, when Peter Hitchens says something that's not the classic standard sort of article of faith conservatism everyone says wow it's amazing even Peter Hitchens says that and like he's always said things like that you know he has lots of different views just you can't be bothered to find out what he thinks about stuff because he's a conservative and therefore who can you assume yeah, yeah so I can just assume you know he sort of eats babies for breakfast but no well, like, well it's a classic thing isn't it that conservatives think liberals deluded and liberals think conservatives are evil right <laughs> I mean yeah I think that I mean that goes back to the 18th century Malthus and Goodwin arguing you know and there's countless examples of that. I mean, I do. I mean, I agree. There are sometimes we do play up to that. That's kind of inevitable. But there is a certain aspect that there is just sort of little interest in what conservatives think. And I think partly a lot of it's just down to urbanism. I mean, that, that's another thing. I, I mean, in America, you know, the cities are very liberal. The countryside is more rural. And Britain's overwhelmingly urban. That's partly why we're more liberal than the states. But as cities grow, people become more liberal and as they become much more intensely liberal and there are fewer conservatives in them. So you, in a way, cities are sort of less open-minded than small towns in a strange way. I mean, I, I use the example, my mum lives in a small town in Kent. You know, the people, her neighbours and people she chats to every day are from a vastly more different, diverse backgrounds than the people I know in North London. You know, they, I mean, her friend neighbours probably are all English, but they come from different social classes and they have different political beliefs. So I, Literally almost everyone I will talk to in my area will have the same views or have the same educational background. And that's the partly the thing of urbanism makes us much more fit into our own little niches. So that amongst that is, you know, our own political niche. And social media is just like an extreme vault of cities because you can just find all your own little groups. And 
and that makes you more hostile to members of the out group. It's kind of normal. Well, you're a brave and lonely figure. Thanks, I'm very <laughs> London. <laughs> and thank you very much for thank coming you very and much, outing yourself. You were listening to the Spectators Books podcast. I very much hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, please do consider rating or reviewing us on the iTunes store. We'd love to hear from you.